Welcome back to Feeling Seen, the podcast about the movies that make us feel seen. I'm your host, Jordan Cruciola, and my co-host today is Liza Powell O'Brien. Liza is the writer and host of a podcast from Team Coco called Significant Others, which has just come back for a long-awaited season two. She's also an accomplished playwright and a veteran of the New York advertising world. And the character she's brought today was a surprise and a delight. Michael Dorsey, also known as Dorothy Michaels, from Sidney Lumet's 1982 classic, Tootsie. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to meet you. I love your podcast. I'm happy to be here. It's always so nice when people say that. And I literally, like, in the way that, oh, like, this was so unexpected when someone wins an award. Like, it's always so unexpected. Your podcast is Significant (laughs) Others. So let's start out with the name, like, explains it. But also, if you don't know, you might not realize that the name explains it. What is Significant Others? Cover. So the idea of Significant Others is that it tells the stories of people who were profoundly influential in the trajectory of a person who we all probably are familiar with through, you know, the stories of history. Um, but in the that that influence has been lesser known or overlooked or underappreciated. So sometimes it's a spouse, which is obviously indicated by the title. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a parent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is a friend. And um, I just find I've always been very interested in dualities Mm -hmm. and in, um, in intimate partnerships not necessarily sexual intimate partnerships, but any kind of, you know, protracted, ongoing, deep connection between two people, I think is always very complicated in really interesting ways. I at least can lose track of when someone is illustrious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's one way of putting it. Um, (laughs) I like that. Or known for historical reasons or known for sort of a drier reason. You know, they're Mm -hmm. a politician, they're a, you know, a general, whatever. You can, I can anyway, easily ignore the fact that they were probably in some sort of really interesting, complicated relationship with someone in their life. And so sometimes these stories um, come up that are are just, you know, super interesting. Like last season, we told the story of uh, Vladimir Nabokov and his wife. And mm-hmm. I... What I, a pairing that is. Oh, wow. right? I know. Yeah. It's fascinating. She was such an interesting person. He was brilliant and mm-hmm. kind of, you know, unusual and strange and she Mm -hmm. was absolutely as married to him in every sense of the word as a person could be to another Mm -hmm. person but also very very interesting in her own right and um she what originally got me sort of interested in them together is that i was told in grad school that she rescued the manuscript of lolita from the trash basically he was working on it for four or five years and it was driving him crazy and he kept (laughs) saying i'm nuts to even do this and they they you know they were struggling they didn't have a lot of money and she was like absolutely not this is going to be our ticket out Mm -hmm. which in fact it turned out to be so um you know if not for her that book may never have seen the light of day which i find fascinating to contemplate Mm -hmm. right so those are the kinds of stories I really, really get interested in. And then turns out their entire relationship is fascinating. It's not even mm-hmm. just that tidbit that's interesting. So, 
that reminds me of a. I I, I won't say the name because it it's not my story to tell. But I do. I have a friend whose dad is a very famous actor. She said that her parents uh, divorced when she was young because her dad couldn't handle that he was the least interesting one in the marriage. And wow. every story she has about her mom is sensational. Like wow. the life this woman lived, and, and like the stories she has about her dad are like they're interesting because like they're Hollywood stories, so they yeah. kind of have that intrinsic. But like her mom not being the Hollywood figure, but just having this like unbelievable life and he like i love the idea that like this like academy like award caliber actor is just like i can't handle being the smaller of the two in my relationship because my wife's simply too interesting that's fascinating we heard a great story once from don rickles about his wife who was also a character and she (laughs) you know he was best friends with frank sinatra and so they were in all sorts of crazy scenes and she kept her cool in this way that, um, you know, I just wish they had a camera rolling on those two because it's a similar, I I don't think that he (laughs) was resentful of her for that luckily, but (laughs) but yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very common and, and, and to me, it's interesting to think about how that is true in every relationship to some degree, whether a person is, you know, known publicly or not, Mm -hmm. you know, these sort of issues of competition and envy Mm -hmm. crop up with the people who you're closest to. And I find that really interesting. Speaking of enriching culture, please tell us the character. And with your professional background, especially, I am so curious to see the specifics of how you connected to this character. Who did you bring for us to discuss on the pod today? Okay. So it's a tricky proposition Mm -hmm. as a, you know, cis, hetero, white, blonde girl growing up (laughs) in the 80s in America. (laughs) It wasn't a struggle for me necessarily to see examples in popular culture of people who were meant to reflect my reality, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, uh, however, I was very aware that there weren't really many representations of people who were meant to reflect my experience mm-hmm. that felt authentic. Yeah, yeah. And so I I remembered that I would have been maybe 12 or 13 when this movie came out, but the movie Tootsie, mm-hmm. which I'm sure has its complications for people who, you know, are outside the mainstream experience, quote unquote mainstream at that point. Um, But for me, I think that watching, and so the character that I identified with, weirdly, is the protagonist, Dustin (laughs) Hoffman's character, Michael Dorsey, who is a struggling actor, who's very, very devoted. He's a true artist and cannot get work. No one will hire him. It seems to be a a tremendous acting coach. Correct. Well, that's how they portray him anyway. Yeah, he's he's very deeply devoted to his craft. And wants everyone who he's working with to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's very difficult, partly because he's so passionate. My friends. That's Super Michael Abbott. I wonder if you could move center stage on that last speech and then die. Why? Well, the left side of the house can't see you at all. You want me to stand up and walk to the center of the stage while I'm dying? Well, I know it's awkward, but we'll just have to do it. Why? I just told you now do it. Because you say so. Yes, love. Not with me as Tolstoy. And he has a student slash 
romantic interest, Terry Garr, who is pitch perfect. She's phenomenal in everything she ever did, right? Thank you so much for uh, on the way into recording today. I was having a conversation with producer Marissa about I miss Terry Gar. Terry Gar was formative to my upbringing. I love I Terry Gar. Thank you so much for spotlighting Terry Gar who was perfect in everything she's ever done. It's absolutely true. I don't think that we have devoted enough attention and and love to her in general because she was just so good at what she did. This is a no, bit of a I sidebar, think Ter- but I think Terry Gar belongs in like almost like a Madeline Kahn conversation. I, Absolutely. I, I I see them as companion figures in my mind. I, I also don't think that we can, you know, I, I don't know if Catherine O'Hara was inspired by Terry Gar, but mm-hmm. I feel like we might not have some Catherine O'Hara characters were it not mm-hmm. for Terry Gar. Um so Catherine O'Hara, of course, being another absolute genius. Um, <laughs> yes. So Michael Dorsey, the struggling actor, um, is coaching his friend on a soap opera role she's auditioning for. She doesn't get it. She's very upset. And he gets mad because he thinks he knows he can do the role. So he mm-hmm. dresses up as a woman. He goes in and, and auditions and, and, and takes liberties with his audition, which I think we're meant to understand as because he is this difficult, passionate artist, yeah. he is sort of changing the game in a way that ends up working for him. Mm-hmm. There's also the element, obviously, that he is a male person. He is yeah. coming at this from a male perspective. Mr. Carl, I, I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. I can play this part any way you want. Honey, I'm sure that you're a very, you very good actress. What you're looking it's just for? that you're a little bit too soft what? and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to knee your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start? Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point, like, like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear. Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. Jesus. What is idiotic about power making a woman masculine? Not that that was my point. I... Miss Michaels, just a minute. Nancy Weiser to video transfer. Was that for real in there, or were you auditioning for the part? Which chance will get me a reading, Miss Marshall? Well, good for you. Come. I don't really think that the movie intends for him to be presented as an entitled by masculinity character so much as just blind to social norms because he's yeah. so deeply artistic. Yes. Um, but it can't be avoided that, you know, this is the dichotomy that they're working with. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so he gets this role as a as a middle-aged woman, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a hospital a administrator on a soap opera. That's right, Dorothy Michaels. And he does it brilliantly. He's very, very good at it. He falls in love with his co-star, Jessica Lange. He's dressing up for their first quote-unquote date when she asks him to come run lines with her, and it's getting yeah. very confusing to everyone around him. Now, what do you mean you don't have a thing to wear? She has seen me in all of these. Wait, she hasn't seen you in the white thing. What, this? Yeah. You cannot wear white to a casual dinner. It's too dressy. You couldn't wear pants? No, no, pants, I can't. What about this thing? No, no, I don't have the right shoes for it. I hate the way the horizontal lines make me look too hippie, and, I, and, and it cuts me across the bust. I think we're getting into a weird area here. This is smart. What about this? Seriously. Well, you look like you should be ringing a school bell. You know, this may seem silly to you, but this is our first date. These won't look pretty far. 
point being, you know, it's a comedy, so things unravel spectacularly. And then mm -hmm. we hope that everything got put together correctly in the end. But I, what I loved about it was that he, he learns and he shows to us how hard it is to perform femininity uh -huh. from the get-go. Like, this is his job. He now has to become a woman for this yeah. role. And the first thing he does is ask his agent for $1,000 because he has to go <laughs> get clothes. Yeah. And he has to get up at 4.30 every morning to put the makeup on and shave and all the stuff. See his laundry? You know what it costs? And the makeup? I don't know how a woman could keep herself attractive and not starve these days. Kind of a little more kind of cheap. Is this the one you ordered in? Oh, yeah. I got to set that before I go to bed. Easy, easy, easy. Please. I'm dieting. Please. I got to go to 4.30, do a close shave. I already called the studio and told them that I got to do my own makeup because I have an allergy. And I think what it helped me with at that sort of adolescent moment of figuring out, like, what are my options? You know, how, yeah. how can I be in the world? That it was acknowledging, okay, it's really difficult to be a quote-unquote beautiful woman who conforms mm -hmm. to this, you know, standard. And then also he's supposed to be dieting. I mean, he really kind of immerses in the role of being a woman and i to me i think it just revealed that it is a role you know that mm -hmm. it can be a role right and so i felt i felt liberated from the expectation of being any particular type of woman because it was you know sort of you know i'm trying to think okay was that really the only time it was revealed to me but but in a mainstream popular culture kind of a way and it's so fascinating that that <laughs> it took a man being in a woman's role yeah. to acknowledge out loud in this sort of, you know, generalized public forum that no, 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 it is genuinely difficult to be a beautiful woman or a successful woman or whatever it is. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, there are plenty of, you know, movies and shows that are trying to make that point. Who's the boss also comes to mind. Another mm -hmm. favorite of mine. <laughs> I don't know if you remember who's oh, the boss. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Who's the boss? Yeah. So, you know, Angela definitely struggled with her uh, dual roles of being beautiful woman and successful. Anyway, so I found some sort of solace, I guess, in watching like, again, coming from the perspective of the early 80s, where you know, a male, like a cute, nebbishy, brown-haired, like, go-get-em protagonist was, <laughs> like, the Matthew Brodericks, like, that's who was winning everything in those yeah. movies and in those portrayals of, you know, American life. And if he couldn't really even do it, mm -hmm. well, then how am I supposed to be expected to do it? So... <laughs> So I stopped shaving is what I did. No. Yeah. So I liberated myself. Exactly. I think one of the, the sweetest things that to me holds up about this movie is the tenderness mm -hmm. that Michael immediately feels for Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And right. like he he starts he's like, well, her hair, he just she deserves to like there's that she night where he's at home pretty. with his his roommate, Bill Murray, and he's, mm -hmm. like, picking out, like, the curls in the wig. And he's like, she just, you know, she deserves to be more beautiful than that. Mm -hmm. I don't like the way he condescends to me either. Calls me sweetheart, calls me honey, doesn't even know my name. Calls her baby. He pushed me around today. I'm telling you, if I didn't have the dress on, I would have kicked his arrogant ass in. How'd you ever end up communicating with this guy? Well, he told me what he wanted. I didn't agree with him. I didn't say anything. I did it the way I wanted to. He bawled me out. I apologized to him. That was that. I think, I think 
Dorothy's smarter than I am. I just wish I looked prettier, you know? I'd look in the mirror and maybe I can just get a softer hair or something because she she deserves it and and talking about that like like he says like this is you know this is basically he's like you know it's hard to understand but this is our first date like you said talking about jessica lang and he wants to look beautiful for jessica lang because he says that she deserves to have that like for for dorothy to show up looking her best because he feels for this woman and so like this is a movie that is so set up to be like 50 years later, we look at it and we're like, whoa, the passage of time was not kind. But there is where there's kind of a, a lack of understanding or confusion, yeah, somewhat understandably, from the people around him of like, why are you doing this? And like, I'm uncomfortable. And at one point, his agent is like, don't sit too close to me. Like when yes. they're at a restaurant, because he, he knows that he's Michael, yes. that she's Michael. No, there's definitely like, a level of transphobia existing in the, you know, universe of the film and a level 100%. of homophobia and all of that. I, I can't, again, that's not my lens. So I can't, I can neither oh, dismiss it nor endorse it. But to me, I feel like um, what might mitigate that, hopefully, um, is that there is this, as you say, this deep identification and humanity to mm-hmm. his, he, and it's funny because, you know, the Broadway version of this show got kind of pilloried for being deeply transphobic. Mm-hmm. And I, I haven't seen that, so I don't know the difference. But mm-hmm. but from what I gathered about criticisms of the musical is that it was very reductive in terms of, you know, and, and and empowering, like like just yeah. oh she's because she became a woman and therefore she got everything she wanted and yeah because she's a girl boss now he's a girl right. boss now right and that's so not true and and the fact that that we watch this you know great fish out of water moment of you know this this guy who has never had to live as a um, as a woman obviously mm-hmm. um, never chosen to live as a woman hasn't had that experience. Mm-hmm. And so he sees with fresh eyes the stuff that, you know, a lot of women just kind of forget to notice, like yeah. the fact that he can't get a, a cab to stop for him, the fact that, you know, <laughs> yeah. people are sexually harassing him left mm-hmm. and right. Mm-hmm. And obviously all of this is amped up for the comedy because it is, I think, a very funny movie. I, um, ag- I agree. Yeah. But, but I think that is such an important piece of it, as you say, that there's this... Um, I mean, it's beyond empathy. It's like, you know, truly living in, in someone else's shoes. And He takes Dorothy like, completely seriously as a full autonomous yeah. being. And that is like, you know, that's his pretentious artist, like, informing that, like, as he says, he's like, this is the great acting challenge of a lifetime. Like, this is the role yeah. of a lifetime. Like, I'm yeah. playing a woman. But he doesn't reduce it down to its gimmick. The I, I so appreciate that the movie immediately has him taking her seriously mm-hmm. as a person with wants and needs mm-hmm. and a history and mm-hmm. desires and, like, what she deserves. Mm-hmm. And it, like... It is so incredible to, like, look at, like, the flip, like, like sandwiching, like, 1982 Dustin Hoffman playing, you know, Michael Dorsey, struggling actor, being like, and you watching this and being like, wow, mm. this taught me that gender's a performance. Right. And that it's all drag. Right. And now the way that I people can access that conversation, like, that literal mm. statement is... In RuPaul's America, mm-hmm. like not Paris is burning drag yeah. culture, right. like in its seedling form, 
a fringe art form in drag artistry into big bucks headline must see TV with watch party nights in bars. Like that is like the you growing up now can look at even if they themselves are not a genderqueer individual, they can look at RuPaul Mm -hmm. saying that it's all drag, honey, like that gender is all a performance. Right. I think that's God, that should be asserted, I feel like, to every child at every person at some point in their life like hey guess what it's all a performance right and you can engage in that performance to whatever degree you want yeah in whatever direction you want like you Mm -hmm. can play with it on a daily basis you don't like Mm -hmm. there's no law (laughs) that says you have to Mm -hmm. you know be one thing or i don't know everything gets so reduced to oversimplified and um and it's funny when you talk about everything being drag that's another piece of this movie that I know that so Jessica Lang, the the love interest, is the ingenue in the soap opera. She introduces herself as hospital slut. That's her yeah, character. Yeah. And she's just unbelievably seductively beautiful and tender is the right word for her. She's, you know, I remember literally going like, how does she get her hair to do that? Like the <laughs> curls in her hair are so perfectly soft and bouncy and they don't look <laughs> fake. I mean, I have no idea if that's just like how she wakes up in the morning or if I mean, she's did maintained that for it hours. for so long in her life. I don't know what the answer could be just other than yeah. Jessica Lang has it like that, which would be yeah. utterly unsurprising to me. Yeah. And but I remember being sad for her character, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. again, we're we're meant to feel a little that way. But because she is of all of those characters, I feel she's the one who's most locked into a performance that like, yes, she has been assigned something and she has agreed to it maybe without even realizing and she is struggling under it. She's an unwed mother, which she seems to be okay with, but also mm-hmm. I think we're given a window onto how difficult that is for her. Yeah, when uh when Dorothy says like, oh, it's how hard can a baby be? And then we get that like smash cut to yeah. like, Dustin Hoffman running around telling a baby, well, he's running around in a dress telling a baby, I love you, I love you. And it's just screaming <laughs> at him for hours. Right. And then the nanny that she relies on to help raise the child is she's terrified of. And there's no, uh, you know, there's there's no warmth there. And mm-hmm. so I just, I don't know. I think, I don't, who, who knows what these men who wrote this movie had in their, <laughs> I mean, I know Elaine May contributed to this movie and I do mm-hmm. think she, speaking of significant others, I think she is one of the greatest stories of all time, which has yet to be That's fully told. Um, and I now can't watch it without wondering like, which line did she write? Which line did yeah. she write? Like there's so many good jokes in there and she was, you know, such a brilliant writer. Um, I don't know if she's still working, but. Talk about a podcast guest for you. Well, yeah, I don't know how. I think she's fairly retiring, but um, <laughs> but no, I would love to get my hands on her <laughs> in any way possible. Anyway, so yes, I think I think you're really onto something when you talk about the tenderness of this film because again, even though it's a big, high concept comedy, mm-hmm. and it was very much that you know, I mean, the '80s were not a time that is. <laughs> <laughs> looked to for its sensitivity to the breadth of human experience. God, um, no. But this one, I think, again, because it's attuned to truth, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of character, in terms of human experience, in terms mm-hmm. of social, you know, machinations, 
the way things tend to work or did then at least, I think it brings us so much more than it might even have tried to. Michael Dorsey is very good at certain things, but he sort of is in certain ways the epitome of that, like the confidence of a mediocre white man and the idea of wearing that inside you and really believing it and bringing it to like whatever milieu you work in is him walking in dressed as a woman, raised and nurtured and in, you know, inculcated with the confidence of a mediocre white male who, while in drag, can bring that blustering sense of just... I'm going to walk into an audition and I'm going to change the lines. Like he's working with Terry Gar on just getting her to stay angry enough to play assertive in the audition. And then he walks in there and is like, I'm going to insult the director. I'm going to improv the lines. I'm going to get this job. That's right. And that is like that is living the credo right there. Right. Because it's. It's easier to walk the talk, I feel, when you have the buffer around you at the end of the day of being able to take off Dorothy Absolutely. and being able to, like, pitch down your voice and, like, you know, calling for that cab, like, oh, excuse me, excuse me. And then, like, hey, like, yeah. shouting at the cab and it finally stops for him, even though he's in a dress. Like, right. it is fascinating to watch how, like, so the, okay, so the way to win is to, at the core of it, like, also be a dude. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, damn it! I know. And in the, in it's, I think, partly satisfying as a story because it follows that, like, you know, Greek ethos that he, to succeed, the character has to sacrifice something, right? So yeah. he can get exactly what he wants, only he can't be himself and have it. And <laughs> yeah. he can't yeah. have love and have it. He can't. You know, so it's a very satisfying paradox at the heart of it, which I think we could, I'm sure we could write, you know, a doctoral dissertation on what Mm -hmm. is this saying about being female and, you know, it, it could go many different ways, I think you know, bottom line is, it's just hard to be in the world, you know, <laughs> and we all have our different struggles and harder for some than others. And, you know, it's great to keep that in mind when you're interacting with pretty much anyone. It's time for a quick break, then I will be right back with Liza Powell O'Brien. Then I'll have one quick thing about the latest venture from a Cohen brother that is not a Cohen brothers production, Drive Away Dolls. I'm Emily Fleming. And I'm Jordan Morris. We're real comedy writers. And real friends. And real fucking cheapskates. We say, why subscribe to expensive streaming services when you can stream tons of insane movies online for free? As long as you're fine with 25 randomly inserted super loud car insurance commercials. On our new podcast, Free With Ads, we review streaming movies from the darkest corner of the internet's bargain bin. From the good to the weird to the holy shit look at John claude Van Damme's big old butt. Free with ads, a free podcast about free movies that's worth the price of admission. Every Tuesday on MaximumFun.org or your favorite pod spot. Hallelujah! 
yeah. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Step right up. We're going to heal you. We are the healers, Ross and Carrie. Yes, yes. You there. You look like you're upset. Come up here. Yes, you are healed because you've listened to our podcast. Yes. Have you been having trouble with demons? Are you sleeping too much? Too little? Just right? We have the solution. It is to listen to Oh, oh no, no, Ross, Ross and, and Carrie. Carrie. A show where we examine unusual claims. We show up so you don't have to. Find us on MaximumFun.org. We won't actually heal you. Obviously, the advertising agency world of New York Mm. City immortalized forever in the... um, not misogynist in and of itself, but like the sort of documenting of the misogyny and ennui of, you know, Don Draper's life in mid-century America. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you wearing total work drag to be in that? <laughs> like, was that a, it was, you know, perhaps late 80s into the 90s, but say on a scale of things we've got, we talked recently on the show about Virginia Woolf and mm-hmm. how just sort of insanely transgressive Liz Taylor's character must have been, like, watching Mm. her Mm. at that time. Like, they must have thought she was, like, a demon from hell or something. And then you watch Tootsie, and this figure that Dustin Hoffman is playing, like, Dorothy is the feminist hospital administrator who, like, doesn't accept a man's advances of her and says, you'll think of me for my head and not for my body. And, like, she's inciting women across America to write letters and support and... That now we have RuPaul in the middle. We have you in advertising America. So how is the what is the Tootsie to like Sasha Velour continuum? Uh Where are we falling in there for you as a woman in the workplace and ad world? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know that it's not an inherently misogynistic, you know, industry. Yeah, maybe most industries are. Maybe industry period, is an yeah. inherently misogynistic enterprise. I don't yeah, like know. like industry. Capital yeah. I, industry. Just period. Well, I mean, I have this thing that happens to me all the time where I, th- <laughs> I don't know if anyone else does this, but I think about, as you get older, you realize, like, who you are partially as defined by who you're not, you know? And mm-hmm, so the, mm-hmm. the more you learn about yourself and like, well, that's just, For I'm sure. just never going to be the kind of person who wants to stay up all night. Like, that's just not going to be me <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I think sometimes, what would the world be like if it were filled with people who were only like me? Like, what would we not have? Yeah, we would yeah. not have buildings. We yeah. would not have, you know, machines really of any kind. You know, like there's yeah. so many. We'd all STEM, have a lot of generally com- yeah. STEM. We'd have a lot of conversations. You know, <laughs> yeah. We'd make we would a be lot so of emotionally enriched. That's right. So, um, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's just built by someone who's so different than I am. Yeah. You know, any kind of giant corporate structure that it's just hard for me <laughs> to wrap my head around. I'm like, well, <laughs> how much, you know, rightness and wrongness is baked into that from the beginning? I can't even begin to comment. But <laughs> yeah. but I think that I got I got off fairly easily, I think, in my job because I was what they call a creative. And I oh, okay. I love the way that they turn it into um, a noun. Um, yeah, <laughs> a fungible asset. That's right. A creative in the advertising industry when I was a part of it was, and maybe still is, um, you know, you get, there's a certain amount of license that you get. And actually Got people it. kind of expected you to be interesting or um, you know, whatever. So in fact, if I you know, came to work in like a banana republic suit, 
mm-hmm. I would be discounted. Like uh, people would think like you can't possibly a good, be a good writer because you right. are dressing like an account executive. Mm-hmm. And then I know that all of the account executives that I worked with did wear, you know, there were a lot of pencil skirts. There were a mm-hmm. lot of like, you know, um, travel agent blouses, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> but I didn't get the sense that I think if people hated that, if they wanted to do it differently, I yeah. think it was like, we are a creative industry. That is okay. Sure, sure. You know, I'm an advertiser. Like, <laughs> it was so high on its own supply in the 90s. I can't imagine. I came into publishing and magazine writing on the, on the like, the middle of the crash in uh, 08. Oh. But, oh, like, God. the stories yeah. that my editors had of, like, the expense accounts and yes. the dinners, I can't even imagine. Like, it was a rich industry. It I was. can't even imagine what it was like in advertising, which is the money that kept that industry afloat. Well, and I was there from, like, 94 to 2000. Oh, halcyon um, days. Yeah, and right, because it was the, in the 70s was sort of the beginning of the real creative advertising, mm. you know, with the okay. ads for the VW Bug, which were so famous. And Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know the Mad Men era is, is known, but in terms of it being like a, you know, um, an industry that where art and commerce actually did collide, yeah. um, spectacularly, that began in kind of the 70s maybe late 70s, really, uh, some of the 60s. But anyway, point being, in the 80s, then it was like Nike happened, and oh, those ads yeah. were so great. Mac um, ads, Mac ads. Macintosh ads, that Apple 80, 1984 ad. The 1984, like, break your, free yourself from the darkness and the chains. Yep, and that was 1983. So I got, you know, that's why I wanted to be in advertising. I wanted to write and, and I had to get paid for it, and that was one of my few options. But, um, mm-hmm. but I also was really proud to be. God. It was exciting. There were a lot of great, and, and a lot of, like, less known really smart, funny, interesting, beautiful work. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that does seem to have shifted. Like, I, having just watched the Super Bowl, um, <laughs> you know, we, we were like, what? I didn't even understand half the... They were moving so quickly. There were a lot of cuts and a lot of cameos and, and you know... The, the TikTokification of the ads. Yes. And the mm-hmm. one with um, Jennifer Coolidge... Mm-hmm. was the only one that I actually like <laughs> was engaged with because it mm-hmm. was it was slow enough. It was at human speed. Yeah. And she's so <laughs> brilliant also, speaking of comedic female performers. Um, that was like so – it stood out so much to me because mm-hmm. it was so quiet, you know, and just like a real human moment. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you start – when do you start writing plays – well, and when you start like when you start doing that and you're responsible for creating these fully fledged lives on paper, mm-hmm. like I, I think that like I started thinking about it when you mentioned the like, you know, you, you define yourself as much by sort of what you're not as by what mm-hmm. you are like. Mm-hmm. It's a big responsibility to make people and then show them to people and be like, believe it. Like, you know, <laughs> invest in it. Care. Well, it's funny because the caring is the hard part. Yeah, like, how do you interface with, you know, you're not, like, thinking about fucking gender necessarily when you're writing with these plays, but when you're, like, I'm writing the women on the page that I want people to get invested in, like, Mm -hmm. 
is that intuitive, like, oh, I'm just a woman writing women? Or is it like, <laughs> damn, now that, like, I'm in the interiority of, like, being in this stranger's mind yeah. that I'm having to make into a real person, like, I just des- they deserve right. my best effort for them. They do. And I think it's hard. I mean, first of all, I don't, I don't know any answer. I don't know how to do this. I don't sure. know that I ever do it particularly well, but I enjoy doing it. I do. I, I like <laughs> trying. And I, I, what happened is that I had always been a, a fiction writer. And so um, I did what I could in advertising. And then I sort of got frustrated with the bureaucracy and yeah. the layers of people you'd be pitching ideas to over and over again, yeah. and nothing would really come of it. And that, that just wears you down. So um, so I decided to go get an MFA in fiction writing, which I did. I, I, and I, like I decided it. to pursue the big money. I went for an MFA exactly. in fiction. I got an <laughs> MFA in fiction. That is the possibly the least employable degree on the face of the planet. <laughs> so, and I wrote a collection of short stories for my thesis. And while I was getting my MFA, I took a class with um, a woman named Ellen McLaughlin, who is an actor and a writer. She was, she's, Tony Kushner calls her his muse. She's, she was the original angel in Angels America. Oh, wow. She's just spectacular in every possible way. And she just taught this intro playwriting class that I took. And I loved it so much. I loved the structure of it. I loved that there were sort of building blocks. I was, you know, I felt like in the fiction classes, it was wild, wild west. People were just doing whatever and no one knew why it worked or it didn't. And I just felt kind of confused a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I didn't write anything that I felt really committed to. You know, I was <laughs> yeah. just kind of like trying stuff, which is fine. Yeah. But so then I we moved from New York to California and there's no time like moving away from New York to try to start a career in the theater. Um, but <laughs> that's, that's what, what I, I did. Fresh perspective. Okay. That is what I did. So um, I'm in LA and I was like, you know, I think I want to try and write. Also, I've, I've, I wanted to write something of substance. I wanted to write something of some length, but an novel mm-hmm. just still to this day feels completely overwhelming. Yeah. But a play. And a play is like, you know, around 75, 80 pages, maybe. Mm-hmm. I was like, I think I can do that. So, mm-hmm. so that's when I started writing plays. And then the other cool thing about it is there's this interactive element to the creation of theatrical pieces that, you know, a novelist is just so alone. Mm-hmm. And I like to be yeah. alone, but not all alone. Mm-hmm. So then it became a lot of like, you know, investigating these worlds where people are figuring this stuff out together. And that's yeah. super dynamic and interesting. Very underfunded and sadly hard to access these days. But, um, mm-hmm. but wonderful nonetheless mm-hmm. and i think not totally dissimilar from writers rooms in you know in tv mm-hmm. um but but again for a lot less money yeah so yeah. in fact <laughs> no money um <laughs> that's really what i seem to appreciate is a pay-free job yeah i truly never met a practical career that i liked right. um just right. can't can't seem to can't seem to never could find my passion for coding you know right. exactly um i think what i like about just personally the form of playwriting is that there's this my my workshop professor in graduate school uh ben marcus used to talk about how important restraint was mm. For an artist that like mm, mm-hmm. sort of a version of you know it's all in the editing right it's like yeah. what you hold back is very defining um as we said earlier and 
in playwriting, you, there's no narrator there. Mm -hmm. You have to hold that entire, and I think I'm a bit of an over commentator. So I think that I, the fact that I couldn't exercise that faculty forced yeah. me to make stuff happen, you know, in through dialogue that was exciting to me. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, and again, it is, it does let you get into these like relationships, you know, mm -hmm. which is, is really where I get the most excited. Like what Michael, Michael says, like, you know, we, we hear him make notes about like what Dorothy deserves, like she yep. should, she yep. deserves, she, you know, is entitled to. What is the most, you know, when you're writing characters, what is the thing that for you they, they most deserve that you want to honor for them? Like depth, so, it's it's feeling, it's people care about like I, mean, I don't think it's like I don't think it's like ability. I think we're past that point. Like what is it the thing where you're like, no, this is what every character of mine should have? Uh I mean, humanity is the sort of stock answer, and then that makes me think, well, what what does that mean? Yeah, and that and mean? I, I think I think you actually put it very well when you said that M Michael Dustin Hoffman in Tootsie takes his character seriously. Like he mm -hmm. takes her seriously, he honors her, and mm -hmm. I think this is this is key to characterization: is you honor someone with the full spectrum of human feeling and desire, mm -hmm. and and then also noticing like. Again, when you think about like what you know about yourself to be true and how you might be different, like I have a daughter who's in college and she called the other day and she was like, I've realized that I'm very good at doing what's asked of me, but I'm less good at hmm. deciding what I would like and asking for that, which is, I think, totally appropriate for a 20 year old. Right. Wow. Also props to her for being like, I've realized this. She's she's, good she's always job. been very good <laughs> at that kind of thing. But people pay a lot of money to figure that shit out later. That's that is true or not figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, but I but I think that's part of the fun with characters is saying like, so what is this character? What is what mm -hmm. makes this character? So again, to use, you know, Michael Dorsey as the example, he's not he's not just a uh, what do you call it? Mediocre white man. Yeah, he's not. He is what he wants more than anything is to succeed at his art like that mm -hmm. is his and he would sacrifice other things for that so i think mm -hmm. that's another interesting way of talking about what defines someone is what would they sacrifice for what mm. you know mm -hmm. and you can do a number on yourself if you start applying that to yourself and saying like what would i if it came to i had to choose between <laughs> So better to just put it on the page rather than trying to apply it to your own life because we're really <laughs> not in control of it in our own lives to the same degree. Um, but I think I think it's that. And I also, there's a thing that um, my significant other has said a number of times that has really stuck with me and been very helpful actually in my work. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he said it about one of his favorite movies, which is Unforgiven, that great, you know, mm. Clint Eastwood yeah. movie. And he, it's a really, I mean, I would not gravitate toward a Western, but I'm really glad that I've seen that movie a bunch of times because it's uh -huh. excellent. And he says one of the things that makes it such a good movie is everyone in it is doing what they think is the right thing. Mm. And I think it's very easy when you're creating characters to assign them bad behavior and not justify it, right? Mm -hmm. And just say like, well, they're the villain, so they're doing this bad thing. But if mm -hmm. you frame each character inside of their universe where they, because it's very rare if it even happens that mm -hmm. an actual human being wants to do the wrong thing 
or the bad thing. Like, yeah, it's usually... outside the bell curve. I think it's outside. It's there, but it's not like it's not in the bulk of of the experience. Right. And what really drives people to do things that are destructive or evil or bad, you know, is is a very complicated and, you know, probably very specific situation mm -hmm. each time. Um, and so if you assume that everyone is trying to act correctly to mm -hmm. some degree and they're trying and they have desires they're trying to achieve and they have things that they want to protect and some of those things are known to them and some of those things are not known to them which makes it even yeah. more fascinating yeah um then i think you have real characters why can't you get me a special please i could sing as dorothy i could do some monologues i feel i have something to say to women listen to me meaningful. michael you have nothing to say to women that's not true i have plenty to say to women i've been an unemployed actor for 20 years george you know that i know what it's like to sit by the phone waiting for it waiting for it to ring and when i finally get a job i have no control everybody else has the power and i got zip if i could impart that experience to other women like me you gotta listen to me michael there are no other women like you you're a man yes i realize that of course but i'm also an actress I guess my my final question to you would be, do you do you consider or does it like how do you deploy it at this point in your life? Or are you just like, I've lived enough life to not think about that? Like, where does gender performance exist mm. for you now? Mm. You know, I, I think I first of all, as you're talking, I was like, how old do you think I am exactly? <laughs> I didn't want to make you feel well, that I, I had taken offense. I know offense. you're older than I am, and I'm right. 38, so oh, you have I'm more vastly, experience than me. Vastly older than you are. <laughs> um, but it is interesting. I think that I think now at 53, I am mm -hmm. sort of reaching the point that, and I may have felt this way all along, but I think I'm really kind of settling into it, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, my mode of expression is limited. It just mm. is. And mm. I have stuff that I like to put on and ways yeah. that I like to act. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it is. And it's probably been the same since I was 12. And, <laughs> you know, okay. Like, yeah. again, I'm, I'm... I know a lot of people my age that right now, because they are like in their late 30s, they have the self-determination and perhaps the monetary ability to just be the person they fully wanted to be at 12. Right. right. So listen. That's interesting. I think that's completely valid. That's really interesting, actually. It'd be fun to talk to people about like their, you know, who who their dream version of their self would have been at yeah. that age and where they landed at this point and how it's shifted. Yeah. yeah, where is the 12 year old in you right now that you have purchasing power? I mean, yeah, I have a lot of, <laughs> you know, button down shirts, as well, unfortunately. <laughs> You're um, like 12 year old me just fucking loved a button down, too. Yeah. So, yeah, it's so true. Um, I have the school <laughs> pictures to prove it. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I think, um, I mean, again, as we said earlier, I am so could not be more in favor of. Um, sometimes I think, you know, yes, we can read meaning into all sorts of things. That's one of the, you know, wonderful things that makes us human. Absolutely. Um, but sometimes I think it's actually okay to, to unweight objects of meaning a bit. Like if a person enjoys a certain mode of expression, that's, you know, a, a, a visual aesthetic performance or experience or presentation or mm -hmm. even, I mean, I tend to dress more for like 
what I want to feel against my skin. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, especially at this, like, I, I just don't want to put on anything that doesn't feel good. And I don't want to be cold. <laughs> and I, you know, so I don't want to be non-functional. Like there were times when I would wear high heels and now I'm like, absolutely yeah. never doing that again. You know, it just doesn't <laughs> feel good. And, um, and I think it's really interesting to notice what comes to you when you're in different modes of expression, like how does the world respond differently? And, but I do my sort of wish for the world as they would ask our kids in, you know, third grade, what's your wish for the world? You know, my wish for the world is that everyone would, would devalue to a degree, some of mm. these external modes of expression, because mm. what does it matter? Like let mm. everybody should put on what they want to put on. They should look how they want to look. And it should mean what it means to them. And that is what it should mean. It should not mean, mm -hmm. you know, anything to anyone else. And I know it's a very Pollyanna thing to say. And sure, sure. And I do. But it's what you wish for the world. It's what you wish for the world. And again, the, the, the playwright in me can't help but flip around to understand the mentality of people who do get very anxious <laughs> about what other people are putting on. And I do understand that, like, we have moments of dislocation. Like if you've grown up seeing people dress a certain way your whole life and then suddenly you mm. encounter a person who's doing it differently, yeah, it feels a little bit confusing mm -hmm. and that's okay. Like yeah. we can all handle <laughs> being a little confused sometimes or surprised and then maybe we yeah. move beyond that point. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so I, uh, yeah, so I'm just, you know, a, a boring middle-aged lady who likes to wear a, a button-down shirt as I always did. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I love, I actually love seeing people who play with um, extra gender or based or not, I don't care, but people who play with, um, you know, their clothing, with their, mm -hmm. the, their, their look, with, it's, it's a form of art. It's very, very, and some people are very talented at it, some people are not. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, uh, and, and frankly, the people who aren't very talented at it, I kind of love it when they're doing it more because, Listen, have your audacity. Absolutely. And go for yes, it. Yes, be spectacular. And be spectacular. In whatever way you can be. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, and I know I'm, I, I, now I feel like I'm reducing gender expression to clothing, which is not what I mean. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, I, uh, it is also interesting as you move through the, you know, the phases of life and um, young grasshopper, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you do certain fires die down a little bit, you know, like, so there are yeah. moments where it feels like really important to be a certain way or project a certain thing. And it, and depending on what you want, like, if you're trying mm -hmm. to find a person you connect with on a certain level, mm -hmm. like, that might be really important to you at that point. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you get to another point, you're like, we're good. We've had our children. <laughs> we're just watching our Netflix. We're, you know, going to bed at 8.15. Like, who cares what I'm wearing, really, or what I look like? Um, and that's a that's that's a bit of a relief, if you can't tell. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm so impressed by people who who can keep that expression vital even as mm -hmm. they age into realms that they may never have you know yeah wanted to necessarily have to reckon with at a certain point yeah. in their lives i think be spectacular yeah. is is now future max fun pledge drive feeling scene merch right i think that's a sticker we need to have right. be spectacular do it 
quoted Liza Powell. There, yeah, don't even have to credit me. I'm like Elaine May. I'm happy to be uncredited in my greatest works. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. In your significance. Yes. You, you are not a significant other. You are significant you, Aww, Liza Powell so O'Brien. Nice. And I am so grateful for you taking the time and talking to it's us today. Beyond my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much to Liza Powell O'Brien. You can check out the new season of Significant Others, as well as the whole back catalog of the show, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, that one quick thing before I go, as promised, about the new movie, Drive Away Dolls. Uh, I got the chance to see this at the Vidiots Theater in Eagle Rock around L.A., and uh, it, first of all, movie, I had a blast. Uh, if you like the Cohen brother's brand of sort of caricature character. Um, it, it, I think this will land with Coen Brothers fans. Uh, but at the same time, like, I'm not, like, categorically the biggest Coen Brothers fan, like, of, like, their movies generally. Like, they're very good at what they do. Uh, it's, it's a little up and down for me. But when you apply their um, characterization, their dialogue style, their um their aesthetic to a lesbian comedy uh that involves like being gay and doing crimes and taking a road trip to florida uh i'm a big cohen fan and this was not a cohen brothers production though but it is not uh ethan carrying the project on his back he co-wrote and as he said basically co-directed this with his partner his longtime wife trisha cook and i just think it's it's a little scream it's a little scream Margaret Qualley is just kind of batty, out of her mind, kinetic energy in that way. Margaret Qualley really excels. Uh, Beanie Feldstein as a cursing, furious lesbian police officer is definitely my favorite Beanie Feldstein to date. And Booksmart was great, but I want to see this Beanie Feldstein over and over again. Hell, work a song into it. Make it a musical, furious lesbian insert profession here yeah there's a a fundamental plot line that revolves around a case of dicks you guys like this isn't this isn't reinventing the wheel the original title of it was drive away dykes but that's uh that's a harder sell that's a harder sell for people to uh put on a poster but that kind of is very much the spirit of the movie it's drive away dykes it was written uh, according to trisha and ethan in uh, the early 2000s when you couldn't really get a movie with lesbian leads made and distributed uh, into many theaters when you had to be kind of like an indie project to get that done. But uh, no more. As Sydney Prescott said in the title of her book, they are out of darkness. They are out of darkness. And uh, they're, I just, I, listen, it's five stars for me if lesbians are up to hijinks and they're on a road trip. And uh, Geraldine Viswanathan is also fantastic. She's the sort of grounding straight man force uh, to Margaret Qualley and uh, in a movie where there is very little that is straight about it. And that's just going to have a lot of currency with me. So yeah, it's Drive Away Dolls for the one quick thing. And just praising mainstream lesbian movies because I'm a geriatric millennial and that stuff still does not seem normal to me. So I'm going to shout about it from the rooftops when I get it. And that is our show. 
You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at feelingscenepod or send us an email at feelingscene at maximumfun.org. If you want to follow me, I'm Jor Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun. A worker-owned network of artist-owned shows. Supported directly by you.